Welcome to the Lonnie Swain Show podcast. I'm your host, Lonnie Swain. I'm a media veteran, digital content creator, and strategist. My career has required many cross-country relocations from my hometown of New Orleans to Baltimore, St. Louis, Chicago, Dallas, back to New Orleans, and now Miami, Florida. The purpose of this show is to remind you that everyone has to go through something to get somewhere. I lead personal and professional development conversations in hopes of inspiring you to live your best and most authentic lives. And just a reminder, I always love to know what you think about the podcast. So don't forget to rate, review, subscribe and share. Thank you so much for listening. Now let's get into the show. World AIDS Day coming up this weekend. I was so excited to have this guest with us today. Ray Lewis Thornton, an Emmy award-winning AIDS activist, life coach, award-winning blogger, social media expert, author, jewelry designer, and tea connoisseur. RLT has been living with HIV for 35 years and AIDS for 25. She lectures worldwide on the topic of living with HIV AIDS, challenging stereotypes and myths surrounding this disease. Ray Lewis Thornton rose to national acclaim when she told her story of living with HIV AIDS in a cover story to Essence magazine. The past 22 years, Ray has traveled worldwide in an unending crusade in the fight against HIV AIDS. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, thank you for having me. If people are not familiar with you and your story, if you could tell us, how did you first learn that you contracted the virus? Back in the winter of 19. 86, I organized the blood drive and what I thought um, I organized the blood drive because there had been an Amtrak accident in Northern Virginia. I was living in D.C. at the time working in politics and um, people were afraid to donate blood because they thought somehow they could get HIV and there were blood shortages. And I thought, how ridiculous. And so I organized this blood drive at my job and I donated blood. And what I thought was a thank you letter was a letter telling me that something was wrong with the blood. I donated and I went in and they told me that I was HIV positive. The entire meeting took five minutes. It was the spring of 87. So uh, if you can follow the timeline, I donated blood the winter of 86, of 1986. And um, I found out the spring of 1987. They had only been testing donated blood for about a year now. The HIV antibody test wasn't, didn't even come until 1985. And so Prior to then, the only way to know that you had HIV is if you were actually dying from AIDS. Mm. Anyway, I walked away. So there was no pre-testing like, hey, when you go to your doctor's visit, why don't you get a check? There was no, the, the HIV Nothing. test didn't exist. Mm. Zero. Um, mm-hmm. The first cases of HIV were in 1981. Let's follow the timeline from beginning to where we're at. So the mm-hmm. first cases were documented cases from the Center for Disease Control were in 1981. From 1981 to 1985, the only way to know somebody had HIV is if, in fact, um, they came to the hospital and they were sick and they had these AIDS-related complications. In many cases, they were pretty much dying uh, mm-hmm. in the scheme of things. And in 1985, they developed the HIV antibody test. And at that point, they started testing all donated blood, all blood products before 
they used them. So there was this period where I didn't know that I was infected. Um, I believe I was infected in 1983. Basically, I had to to pinpoint the partner. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went away from that real close building thinking, okay, you know, we didn't know that much about HIV. And what doctors were telling people really were, AIDS was the death sentence. You got HIV, you may never get HIV, you may never develop into AIDS. But mm-hmm. we, we later learned that that was wrong information, that people really did transition to AIDS. Uh, 2018 was a different story. But mm-hmm. back then, everybody with HIV would eventually develop AIDS. And it took about seven, eight years for me to begin getting sick. And somewhere around that seventh, eighth year, I started to have AIDS-related complications. And voila, I had AIDS. I developed AIDS. And I was, you know, in a lot of ways, I really was dying. Um, Went from a size 12 to a size 10 to a size 8 to a size 6 in six months. I went from three pills a day to 23 pills a day. And, And life had become really hard for me. I became clinically depressed. I woke up in the morning crying, went to bed crying. The, the thing, though, is that I had been living with HIV in secret. My first seven years, I had told five people that mm-hmm. I was infected. It was something I didn't talk about, something I didn't read about, something I didn't think about. But now mm-hmm. here I am with this deadly disease. Um, there was an expectation that I would die, and so I started to disclose my HIV status. And make long story short, after I told everybody, I was like, "Shoot, I could have told them a long time ago." It felt like tons of books had been lifted off my shoulder. We're about six months after I told friends and family that I was infected. Someone asked me to speak at a high school. I was not a speaker. I was in politics, but I wasn't a speaker. And I reluctantly agreed, and I, I went to this high school, and I spoke, and the bell rang, and another group of students came, and the bell rang, and I noticed that students were um, still hanging around, and I went to the teacher, and I said, can you tell me why you're making some of these students stay? She said, girl, they skipping class to hear you speak. And I mm, Wow. The next day I came, uh, walked into the room for the second day. And young people were like lined against the wall. Those who had heard me the day before uh, had come mm-hmm. back. Those who weren't scheduled were skipping class because they had heard about this woman with AIDS. And at the end of that day, a little Hispanic girl came up to me. I'll never forget it. And she said, Miss Lewis, I know you said you weren't a speaker, but you shouldn't stop speaking because God is using you. Mm-hmm. And I hugged that baby and I was like, uh-huh, okay, thank you, baby. And under my breath, I said, what the hell? She know about the Lord or somebody. Mm-hmm. And two weeks later, lo and behold, I quit my well-paying job and started out speaking. And, I, I, I you know, people say, I want to be like you. I'm saying, do you want to be famous or do you want to do the work? Yeah. And they have to think about it. Um, I stepped out on faith with no speaking engagements, no brochure, and no direction or even how to go about a speaking engagement. Mm-hmm. And six months later, um, the editor-in-chief of Essence Magazine heard me speak. I was getting a local award here in Chicago, the Expo for today's uh, Black Women Community Service Award. And Susan was the keynote speaker. 
and I spoke for about three, four minutes. It was crazy. You know, men had been hitting on me all night, Lonnie, and um, <laughs> extra women had been hitting on me all night. And, you know, you, you, you've done Chicago for a long time. You know, it was yeah. the first Black Expo, so it was oh, incredible. Okay. Mm-hmm. It was the very first dinner. Uh, I was looking fabulous in my gray Lily Rubin sequence dress and my Stuart Weissman pumps. Go ahead, girl. Girl, look, people were giving me notes sitting next to women. And when I stood up to receive my award, I said, you know what, black folks, y'all in total denial. Not only do I have HIV, but I have full-blown AIDS. Mm -hmm. And I said, you would never know it. And you could hear a pin drop. And then Mm -hmm. I said, thank you for the award. And I whisked off the stage. And as I was walking off the stage, Sarah Taylor grabbed my arm and said, can I do a story on you? And I said, yes. And two Mm -hmm. weeks later, she called me and said, Ray, we would like to put you on the cover of our magazine. And I said to Ms. Taylor at the time, there's not a black woman in America who wouldn't want to be on the cover of your magazine. But you hold me speak for three minutes. Why would you do it? She said, because I believe you have a story to tell and I want to tell it. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, being on the cover of Essence, we uh, together changed the face of AIDS for black women in America. Uh, mm-hmm. To date, you know, 20, almost 25 years later, it is still one of their most iconic covers. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm proud of that place and space and history, you know, that God has put me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, once you're on the cover of a magazine, everything else comes. And you do TV, you do Oprah, you do Nightline, and just things just keep going. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't something that I wanted for myself, but it was a call that I accepted. And the rest is history. Oh, and yes. I did that. <laughs> Yes, yes, because that's two things. The first thing I was going to say is when she first asked you to be on the cover, because it's one thing to share that with your friends and your family and people that you know, but to go public on the cover of a magazine to say that you have what was titled as a, a deadly disease, what were your initial thoughts? Did you automatically think, oh, yeah, definitely you didn't even have to sleep on it or because it's like one of those I, things uh, once you, you know, put it out? I was talking, let's be clear. I was talking to Susan Taylor. I was like, heck yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Woo, mm-hmm. yeah. But you know what? Uh, in retrospect, I really didn't think about what I was doing. I just did it. Mm-hmm. I, I believe that if I had stepped back from it, Mm-hmm. I would have said, no, boo But didn't think about it. And it wasn't until um, I wrote the first draft of the um, of the article and I sent it. This was before emails and, you know, all of that good stuff. And so I put it in the mail and I sent it to Miss Taylor. And I cried um, that night for three hours because mm-hmm. it was like I had given her, I had given Essence a part of myself. Um, Mm -hmm. I had, you know, and I didn't really realize, even until the magazine came out, uh, how vulnerable of a position um, that I had placed myself. Um, I just laid it all out in my transparency and my candor um, Mm -hmm. in a way that I, I I didn't know it until it was done. 
and mm-hmm. and for a long time, and you know, my friends still tell me now that I really don't that me Ray don't understand the impact that my life has had on others. But I can tell you this: I was on the cover of this of Essence, December nineteen ninety four. Do you know women still bring me that? that magazine and mint condition for me to sign a speaking engagement. Oh, wow. I'm like, girl, mine is the ass is scratched out. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh-huh. That's but a long time. It's a whole long time. It's a long time. And you know what? I didn't think about it. I just did it. And that was really, you know, for the best, probably. I, it was the best. It was the best for everything. For, for me, it was the best thing for uh, women who were exposed to my story, but mm-hmm. but it meant that I was aligned with the universe and what God had in store for me, and mm-hmm. and and so it was the thing. I didn't even think about it. I just did it, mm-hmm. and and doing that put me on a path that I uh, never even dreamed of or imagined that I would. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, girl. Now, since, let me just be honest, since being on the cover of Essence and I've learned uh, in these 20-something years how media works, uh, I have turned some people down. Mm. I've turned some people down because your brand is all you got. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, anyway. so yeah, And it wasn't, I, and they weren't aligned, you didn't feel, the people you turned down. Right. I, mm-hmm. I didn't, you know, mm-hmm. that, and, and, you know, and I don't do this to be on TV. I don't share my life and journey to, to, to do podcasts. And it's not what I do this. I do this so that God could use me and that um, we can, through my story and my life, um, we can enrich the lives of others. That's what my gift is, being able mm-hmm. to talk about my life in a way that it enriches the life of the other. Um, some places, um, you know, some, you know, the Bible says you can't put pearl and swine and, you know, it's just, it's some things don't mix mm-hmm. and you have to be real clear on what it is, what it is that you do and, and what's your goal and aim. Mm-hmm. And so I try to make those choices wisely. Yes. And the but discernment then, of what other people's intentions are, too. Yeah. And sometimes it, it become you have to become savvy in media. Um, I've learned the hard way that when a producer, especially for TV, it doesn't matter who it is. But when they come to me with a storyline, uh, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what I say in the interview. Mm-hmm. When they cut that shit up, it's going to be the story sign that they were right. looking for. Oh, yeah. And so, um, and, and then, so, you know, I have a lot more discernment. But back then, girl, look, and we appreciate you for that because even to this day, I didn't know how new the whole epidemic was at that time. But to publicly share something so intimate, so vulnerable, takes so much courage, even to this day. And there's still a lot of stigma uh, connected. Oh, to yeah. Anxiety. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's one of the things that we have not done well with, you know, and I say this often that medical technology and advancements around HIV have grown so at, grown at a far greater rate than mm-hmm. attitudes um, yes. and understandings around HIV. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, I put myself in a vulnerable position 
Um, mm-hmm. But I do it every day when I when I tweet out, when I use social media and talk about my life. Uh, yes. But I do it for that reason because there are so many people that do live in secret of, mm-hmm. about their HIV status. And you know what? People hit me up about a whole lot of stuff. You know, I have adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse. They hit me up. I'm also an adult survivor. And because I've been so transparent with my life, um, other people feel like I'm a safe place in space. To just even if we just have an Instagram conversation behind, um, you know, a DM. Um, yeah. And, and I, I appreciate uh, that, but it still leaves you in a very vulnerable position. Um, mm-hmm. And it also puts you in a place of space where people think they really know you. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, know, you know what you see, what you hear, but you don't know me. Right. You know? right. So, but it forces me to create private space for myself. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I thought was important to to share in this conversation, I did a screening of this documentary in Chicago. Um, it's called All of Us by Emily Apt, and it's talking about HIV and the um the ideas that we as women have about sex and advocating for ourselves and insisting on using condoms and things like that. And I did a free HIV testing at the event and I had some friends there who are well-educated, good economic standing, things like that, have insurance, health insurance, all of those things. And one of my friends at that event told me that was her first time ever being tested for HIV in her entire life. She was sexually active, had had unprotected sex before, all of these things. And that's one of the big things that the documentary speaks about is that here it is, this doctor who's conducting all of this research about HIV, HIV infections with drug users or women who are sex workers. And the behavior of that demographic was the exact same as her peer group. The doctor mm-hmm. conducting conducting the research mm-hmm. talks about she's having unprotected sex with somebody who she thought she was in a relationship with and he wasn't being monogamous with her, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. So even in this day and age, people have access to all of these resources that they don't utilize. And so one of the things that I wanted to ask you about with your experience, when you had already been infected for a few years, were you having any symptoms? Were you experiencing, did you think, and when you go into the doctor, they're saying, clean bill of health, you're healthy as you can be. Mm-mm. You know, what people don't realize is there really are no HIV symptoms. Mm-hmm. Uh, the symptoms you hear people talking about, weight loss, fatigue, diarrhea, those are age-related complications, meaning that you've already been infected at least somewhere between 8 and 10 years, and HIV has destroyed your immune system, and now your body is starting to experience age-related complications. Now, that's how we historically have looked at HIV. But today, what we know is a person never even has to transition to AIDS. That's if they get tested and get into treatment and care. And so the goal today is to get people tested 
and to mm-hmm. get them into treatment and care immediately. Because the earlier we suppress the virus in the body, uh, the longer chances you have to live. The fact is, is that people, well, they don't want to know. They think, mm-hmm. you know, they're like, they're afraid to know. Love, but they're afraid to know. Some of them know what they've done. They're the only people that know what they've done. You know, it really only takes one person to infect you. And mm-hmm. so uh, the reality is this. Um, we really, and I tell people this all the time, we think we know, we hope we know, and some of y'all pray, you know. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you really don't know. And the only way to know your HIV status is to go get tested. So listen, I think all of them that... Um, I believe I was diagnosed that I was infected in 1983, but I donated the blood in 1986. And then mm-hmm. I said somewhere about seven years after that, I started to get sick. From the time I found out my HIV status that I donated blood December of 1986, I didn't start to get sick until mild things in 91, I started losing starting to be fatigued all the time, but I thought I was working on my master's degree. I thought, you know, working a full-time job, working on a master's degree, doing all of that at one time, but I was just tired, you know? I didn't know that disease was progressing in my body. But say you don't even know your HIV status. Right. You know, you just think, whoa, I I need to take some vitamins. I'm tired. You know? mm-hmm. It's so what happens is most African-Americans, and this is really critical, most African-Americans don't find out their HIV status until they have already developed AIDS. Based and on symptoms? They've been, they, which means they've been infected for a good eight years before they even know, you know. And we need people to find out their HIV status as early as possible. That's why testing is incredible. It's, it's important. It's crucial. The other piece is this. The advancement in care around HIV is so good right now that if people get tested and get into treatment and we're able to suppress their virus, meaning their viral load becomes undetectable, mm-hmm. basically meaning it's still there now. It's not a cure. It's mm-hmm. just in such low amounts that it, you can't get sick. Now, guess mm-hmm. what? In those same low amounts, you cannot infect another person. Mm-hmm. So testing is critical to prevention. If you know you're infected and you're in treatment and care, and the virus stays suppressed, the chances that you infect your body are slim to zero. That's why testing is important. But everybody thinks that something about they coochie and woochie and they penis and who they invincible. Have and stuff. Mm-hmm. That don't mean nothing. And I tell people, baby, I ain't had no problem getting no man. I ain't had no problem getting your man, your husband, or no other kind of man with uh-huh. HIV or without HIV. And so to put your life again, it, you know what it's like? It's like walking around with a lump in your breast. And not getting it checked out. Mm-hmm. Thinking it'll go away. Mm-hmm. Thinking it's just going to go away. Mm-hmm. You know, no, he didn't cheat on me. I don't think I need to, you know. Because, see, then you have to begin to take responsibility. Your boyfriend cheat on you, you sign out. Then you have to think about, okay, 
this is some serious stuff. He's added another person into this relationship. Mm-hmm. And whoever what they've been with, for me? too. And whoever they've been with and whoever they've been with. The reality is, is that it's just to not know your HIV status in 2018 is ridiculous. You're not adult enough to find out, and you're not adult enough to have sex. What would you say are some of the biggest misconceptions about HIV and AIDS? Um, That there's a cure for small, which there is not. Um, They look at magic and they say, ooh, he looks good. Well, I look good, too. Look at my Instagram. Ray, uh-huh. R-A-E-L-T, and see how cute I look. You, <laughs> mm-hmm. you wouldn't know it if it didn't tell you. That's one of the days that I comb my hair. Those days that I comb my hair. I still look fabulous, okay? That's I right. I posted, I posted pictures up there with my little braids. My niece said I look like Miss Seely. But that's another story. Uh-huh, but so, you still look so that's good. part of it. Part of it that people say, you can look at a person and tell which you cannot. Um, mm-hmm. I'll know somehow that I'm infected. And the only way to know you're infected is to get tested because there are no HIV symptoms. Symptoms do not come until you've already transitioned to AIDS, which means you've been infected for a good little minute. We live in a false sense of security about who we date and how we date uh, and the, the sex and the relationships that you are in are somehow above the grave of the possibility of HIV, which is not the case either. Um, and you know what? People are still just sad. Like, start with um, treatment and care. You know, I, I talk to people and I'm like, yeah, you know, you're like over 35 HIV men. No! What happened to AZT? AZT is one of many, mm-hmm. you know, and so, um, so one, if, it, if people have a hard, other hard thing that people have a hard time is what we call um, U equals U, getting to zero. Uh, people have difficulty accepting the fact that if I'm affected, so like for me, I'm affected. Mm-hmm. Uh, my viral load is undetectable, which means my virus is suppressed. It's still there in small amounts, mm-hmm. but, but the virus is suppressed. It's not damaging my immune system. That if I had sex with a person and didn't use a condom, I would not infect that person. People have a hard time believing that. Mm-hmm. If I got pregnant and had a child and grew my HIV status in the process, medicine regimen in the first trimester, uh, of my pregnancy, it would be zero chances that my child would be infected with HIV. Mm. Um, there's a one pill a day that you can take that will prevent you from getting HIV. If you think you've been exposed to HIV in 72 hours, within 72 hours, you can go to the doctor and start a regimen that will eradicate the HIV from the body that you've been exposed to. And so we've come so far with this disease. They've made remarkable strides with this disease. Mm -hmm. The problem is is that people are stuck in the 1980s and 1990s with their understanding of HIV. And then we have the new generation who thinks AIDS, HIV, is something of the older generation, when in fact, 
young people are still the largest rising group in the country. And, and, and let me be clear, men who have sex with men still are the number one cases of HIV. And so we have not addressed um, the 13 to 24-year-old gay population whose numbers are rising at an alarming rate. Somewhere in, in the course of all of this, the, the AIDS community, the AIDS activists, uh, people who do this work, they've dropped the ball because we shouldn't have it based upon everything we know about HIV, based upon all the advancements of HIV, we shouldn't have the staggering numbers we do among young people right now. So there's still a lot of work to do. And the biggest, uh, the, the greatest work starts with you. That means and if someone is listening to this right now, if they have contracted HIV, AIDS, if some other incurable STD, do you have any advice for them? First of all, you can live with HIV. That's, that's the thing that you got to know, um, that you can live with HIV. Um, but you have to want to live and you have to believe that your life is valuable beyond HIV. You know, young people would ask me a lot, they say, did you ever think about, you know, committing suicide? And I'd say, no, because guess what? And I thought, if I had committed suicide, I wouldn't be standing here talking to you today. And so I just believe that God always has the next. I've lived the span of this disease. I never anticipated that we will be disadvantaged with medical medicine and treatment. And so one, life is worth living. And, and so that's the first thing you got to decide, I want to live. Once you make that decision, you've got to use all the tools that are important and necessary for you to keep living and thriving. That means get into treatment and care, take your medicine, do what the doctors tell you to do. You need therapy because you can't do this long. You need support system. You need some kind of spiritual foundation. Living with any kind of chronic illness isn't just about taking pills. You have to really to live well with the disease. You have to really have a holistic approach. I also have herpes, and you said any other sexually transmitted disease. I, I was uh, contracted herpes in college prior to HIV. Mm-hmm. Um, for people who are living with HIV who are also um, have herpes, herpes tends to be a little bit more complicated. So my herpes is really complicated. Um, but my herpes don't define me. It's sexually Transmitted diseases don't define me. I'm I'm a person beyond those uh, things. I do mm-hmm. think, though, you need to sit down with your partner and have a sensible conversation. Uh, lay it out on the line. I just don't think that you have a right to choose what somebody may or may not want to be to be involved with. Like I don't want no broke Negro. So <laughs> man, I'm talking about he ain't got no job. I'm gonna talk about keep it moving. Right. It's the same mm-hmm. thing. You know, we need to have conversations about our lives with our partners and where your life intersect and where my life will affect yours. So mm-hmm. with that, that's it. You can live. You just got to want to do it. The technology is there for you. And how can someone be supportive if someone they know has been diagnosed? What are some of the best ah, ways you think? You know, well, first of all, it's their life. They got to leave it. All you can do is support them. Hold their hands up. But you know, it's amazing to me um, as I talk to people across this country that people know more about my life with HIV than they do about their family members. You know, how often do you, do you say, ask your family member who are living with this disease, do you want, can I go to the doctor with you? 
what's your medicine like? What medicines are you on? How does it make you feel? What do you, you know, and so um, it's, it's like the, the pink elephant in the room. It's something we know about it, but we don't discuss it. And, yeah. um, when, and when we don't have these kind of dialogues with our families and friends, uh, it creates a level of isolation. They feel like they're doing it alone. Uh, and so I, I tell family members all the time, friends all the time, get your head up, call, call your, your friend. You know, they'd be speaking to gays and they'd be like, yeah, I'm talking. Him, call her who you know and so some of it is our fear of the disease they don't mm-hmm. want to know they want to know but they really don't want to know and they're afraid to ask how you're doing because they think that it's going to be that they're going to have to hear something um, negative that is negative and the fact of the matter is that um if it's something negative, they need the extra support. And so we isolate people living with HIV because we're uncomfortable discussing HIV. You ain't got to talk about my sex life to go to the doctor with me. Right. It's about supporting well, you well, and your health. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's about supporting you and your health. And so we have to really think about what it is we want, how we want to help our family members. Uh, and move beyond our own issues around how they became infected, who infected them. None of that really matters uh, at mm-hmm. the end of the day. What matters is how can I enrich your life? How can I help you? Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. I tell people all the time, we get so caught up and, yeah, you know, he's gay. You know what? When Jesus was down on the cross, he had the thieves, uh, we had two thieves between them, and one thief said, Father, um, Father, forgive me. And and Lord Jesus said, this day you should be with me in paradise. Jesus didn't say, well, you got to prove to me you ain't going to steal no more. You going to be <laughs> right. good when you get to heaven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all of that didn't and matter. All of that mattered. How you got here, none of that matters. And, um, but to throw our family members away, with this mm-hmm. disease, I think is is a horrible thing to do. Mm-hmm. It's just a horrible thing to do. So we've come a, the the long and short of it is we've come a long way, but we're stuck in some of the other ways around this disease. Mm-hmm. And what makes this disease better is when we're all able to talk about it freely and openly. I think that if more family members talked about it openly and freely, we'd have more people getting tested. You know, yeah. there's a lot of judgments in getting mm-hmm. tested. Well, oh, yeah. if I get tested, what the doctor gonna say? They gonna think I'm a hog. Oh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Because like um, you said earlier, it only it only takes one person takes to infect person. you. You could have sex with one person your entire life and it'd be somebody that could infect you. So, yep. And that's the real deal. Well, thank you Grace, so very deal. much. It has been a you pleasure. You are very welcome. Tell everybody how they can find you, connect with you, have you to come and speak at their school, their church, well. their group. <laughs> Well, I'm on Facebook, like everybody else in the world, uh, at Ray Lewis Thornton. Um, I have a fan page and a personal page. I'm on Twitter. I spend most of my time on Instagram and Twitter. And um, 
you can reach me at both places with the same name, Ray, R-E-E-L-T. R-A-E-L-T is my Instagram and R-A-E-L-T is my Twitter. And I make bracelets and I knit. I do all these creative things. You can find my store at rltcollection.com. Other than that, keep me in your prayers. I'm working on my memoir. We hope to release Unprotected in the early part of 2019. Though This is 2018, right? The early yeah. part of 2019. <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm. So keep me in my prayers. I'm spending all my time working on this memoir. I'm not doing too much in between that. And um, other than that, hey, hit me up on Instagram. I'm there all the time. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Lonnie Swain Show podcast. Please visit my website, LonnieSwain.com, where you can sign up for my monthly newsletter, check out companion blog posts, show notes, and lots of other cool stuff. This podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Buzzsprout, CastBox, Anchor, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and my website. I love and appreciate all of your feedback, so don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share it with at least three people who you think would enjoy it too or benefit from the information. Until next time, go where you are celebrated and appreciated, not just tolerated. Talk to you soon.